All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to um, to Mercy Fellowship. And uh, man, it's just a a joy to get to be with you guys uh, this morning. Um, I know that we've got a ton of people uh, that are still sick, so welcome if you're with us online, if you're here in person. Uh, it's a joy to see uh, your guys' face. Hopefully you guys had a great Christmas, New Year, all of that. Um, last week, if you weren't with us, and, and, and that was a lot of you guys, because, uh, man, Omicron just hit us hard the last couple weeks, um, we begin uh, our year with uh, a sermon kind of setting the tone, setting the vision, saying, hey, here at Mercy Fellowship, we want to be a, a church that is, is rooted because Christ is in us. And we want to be resolved in a world that's opposed to Christ because Christ is for us. And we said that we want to be resting, which we said that, like, that's, that's actually a disposition. That's something that is given when a burden is given over. We want to be resting because our identity is not found in what we do, but what Christ has done for us. So we can be resting because we're in Christ. And so today, we're going to kind of get back into um, uh, uh, our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And, and this is part of how we say we want to be rooted because uh, Christ is in us. We want to be rooted in God's Word. And so um, throughout this year, we're going to continue to preach through books of the Bible, and that means we're finishing Ecclesiastes over the next month. Um, we'll have a sermon in between, and then we'll kick off First Peter, which should take us uh, all the way uh, past um, uh, uh, Easter in the summertime. We'll be looking at the Sermon on the Mount, likely, and then this fall, uh, we'll look at the book of Daniel. And so that's what we got coming up. And so as you turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Um, I, I don't want this sermon to be a, a downer. I mean, Ecclesiastes can sometimes feel like a downer because we start to ask ourselves, like, you know, oh, is everything meaningless? Is it all just vapor and vanity? And the reality is, when we're talking about um, a life under the sun, that's God's word in Ecclesiastes, uh, the, the preacher Solomon saying, that's what the world is like apart from God. But we look our eyes and we shift our gaze above the sun to the one who created the sun, and that helps us to have meaning and purpose and hope even in the midst of difficulty. And so chapter 9 starts to kind of get, um, I don't want to say laser-focused, but begins to, to bring to light the fact of the matter that every one of us in this room, every one of us in this world, Everyone that we have known, everyone that we're going to meet, every baby that has been born or will be, we are all going to face a day where we meet death. And you're like, oh, wow, this, I, this is the one I showed up to. And that can be a downer. And, and the reason that can be a downer is because how we respond to the fact that we will die one day impacts how we live the rest of our lives. And so, um, you know, we read like in Psalm 23, God, you've led me through the valley of the shadow of death. And I think a lot of us, especially in the last couple years where fear has really set in, in in different regards or maybe even the last 20 years, right? You go back to 9-11 to and you think about that. In our lifetime, there's always these things to, to fear, like death could be lurking around the corner. And, and, and I want us to, to maybe shift our perspective today from living um, our lives in the shadow of death to living our lives in light of our death. And I'll tell you what I mean as we get into it here. Um, look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We'll start in verses 1, 6, um, 1 through 6 where it, it does lay out that we are, we're, we're going to pass. Everybody, good and bad. Here we go. It says this, verses 1 through 6 in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. But all this I laid to my heart examining it all. Okay, he's talking about injustice and, and, and other things he's dealt with in earlier chapters, okay? How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are, hold on to this phrase, in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears as one who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are, are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the death. 
But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate, their envy, have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun." Okay, we're going to look at some other verses today as we walk through this chapter. So don't get stuck here, but I want us to, to visit this place because I, I want us to start with the idea that, that we will all die one day. But, but while he's talking about death and how death is going to come for everyone, what's amazing about that is as he starts it off, he doesn't start with, oh, woe is us. He says, no, as I consider injustice, as I consider the finiteness of life, if I, as I consider the frivolity of just pursuing pleasure, in all of that, he says, no, no, at the end of verse one, he says, all of our wisdom and righteousness and our deeds, they're where? They're in the hand of God. And so that means, that presupposes that our lives aren't meaningless. That everything that we are, everything that we enjoy, everything that gives us uh, purpose and meaning is all given to us by God. That, that while, while so much of us wants to be so self-determinant, I want to choose my identity I want to choose my destiny. I want to be the captain of my souls. What Ecclesiastes presupposes, what Solomon, the preacher of this sermon, if you will, says, is it assumes a baseline belief in a God who is in control of all things. And yet, because I think sometimes we we go with the like, well, yeah, God's in control. And I'm not mocking that. Like, yeah, he's in control, and I'm so glad but what if he's also difficult to understand? And what if there are paradoxes? And what if there's moments of like, I don't get why this is happening this way? And so I've said this, I'm sure, several times in this series, but I love Ecclesiastes. I love God's word because it's realistic about the human condition. Hey, there's a big, powerful, amazing God who is the captain of your soul, who commands your destiny. And yet there's things we don't understand. And there's times that require faith. And there's times of doubt. And there's times of frustration. And so here he's talking about being in God's hand. And and that's the idea of, of speaking of God's power that he made it all. God's sovereignty that he's in control of it all. That all that we are, all that we do is also under his, his vision, his purpose, but also under his supervision and justice. God is the one who judges justly. And so if we're going to presuppose, as as I think we should, no matter how you came in today or what your religious background is or or how you see the world, you come in here, we're going to start with the framework that there's a big God. And, And if that God is the one who judges our conduct, is the one who knows the desires of our hearts, is the one who knows the demons that pursue us, then then we need to ask ourselves, I believe, a significant existential question. If there's a big God who created everything, who exists eternally, who actively engages in the world, we believe God's living and active, then you, I, we have to ask ourselves, where do I stand, or maybe where do I fall, before that God? And so in the end of verse one, he talks about whether love or hate, he's speaking about the idea of acceptance or rejection. Where do I stand before God? Am I, am I coming to him in love or am I going to meet rejection? Or where's my heart's disposition towards God? Is it love and acceptance and praise God for who you are? Or is it rejection? No, no, I, I wanna continue to lead my own kingdom. There's a tension that we walk through because we're like, oh man, you know, hey, you're in God's hands, it's great. And maybe you're like, is it? Because you can go through God's word and start reading about what it means to be in the hand of God and, and you, you get to an awesome verse like Psalm 16, 11 says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. To be at the right hand of God is a place of pleasure and blessing and joy. Awesome, that sounds great. Let me read along later. Hebrews 10, 31. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. 
Which one is it? See, there's a paradox there. That it's going to take more than just observing the outcome of our lives, meaning like, are you successful? Are your relationships flourishing? Economically, are you doing okay? Are you physically healthy? Are you enjoying success? Well, that must mean that you're in God's will and that things are going awesome. Oh, things aren't going well for you? There's, there, there's a break? Oh, maybe that must be because of your sin. Well, maybe. Or, oh, you're suffering tragedy or you're suffering somewhere over here. What did you do wrong? wrong? Are you no longer in God's favor? I'm gonna say something that I think might be a little difficult and, and, and I hope that you stick with me after I say it. But there are absolutely no guarantees that a righteous or wise life will ensure earthly blessing or ease. And you're like, well, why would we read Proverbs? Why would we read Ecclesiastes? Why would we pursue wisdom? Why would we try to do the right thing? I mean, if it's really no promise that if you do the right thing, that everything's going to go well, then why? Why, why even try? Well, as we said before, Proverbs are not promises, but they're principles. Ecclesiastes being a, a, a wisdom book says, hey, most of the time things are going to go this way. But there is injustice. There is chaos. And there are, as he's calling out here, moments where, where I see the righteous living out their life and they die. And I see the wicked living out their life and, and it doesn't seem like there's justice. Like they, nothing that they do gets visibly called out. Like I've been looking at Twitter and I'm still waiting for that like rebuke for that person. It's not there. And so, so what do we what do we do when we don't see rebukes for wickedness? Like, it leads us to a place of frustration because we really want justice, right? We want justice when we see injustice, uh, and particularly for, for the wicked, for the evil, and, and we all, like, know who that is. It's never us. It's always them, right? Those who maybe believe a different way, vote in a different way, see the world a different way. It's never for us. We want justice. We want the wicked to suffer. That's why, like yesterday, everyone was cheering that the Buffalo Bills beat the Patriots. Nobody, if you're outside of Foxborough, was cheering for the Patriots, right? We're like, no, they can just lose from now until Jesus comes back, and we're okay, right? Anybody else with me? Just me? Okay. I maybe need to work on my anger a little bit. Okay. I want to be blunt, and I want to say this. You can avoid being committed to God all you want, you can avoid denying his existence. You can come and say, hey, no, I'm captain of my soul. Or, or, or you can say, no, there's really no such thing as sin. There's nothing that really separates me from God. I'm perfect the way I am. Everything I've done is, is because, well, you know, I had a good reason for it. And we can self-justify that nothing that we do warrants judgment. But at the end, God being a just judge is still true. He's crystal clear in these verses. The same event happens to all. He's like, what's that event? Like promotion? Like everything goes awesome? No, he says, we will all die. The righteous, the good, those of you that give a bunch, those of you that sacrifice a bunch, those of you that love your neighbor well, you're going to face death. Those who reject God, the evil, the wicked, the, oh, you know, kind of perverse, the, you're irreverent, you're just, I, I don't even want anything to do with God. Same day, same fate. And we see this juxtaposition daily played out, like we don't like it, we don't, we don't like, 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 wait, like, like I, I, no, I want to see the wicked suffer. I want to get news that, that somebody I don't like died, or somebody evil died, like, don't give me Betty White. Like, that's, like, she couldn't make it to a hundred, like, all of us, like, I mean, I'm not joking, it's like, two weeks, come on. Everybody loves Betty White, right? Everybody loved John Madden. And, and, but it comes. It's something that's out there. And we want clarity that those who do wrong should suffer, but those who succeed should do well. And so, I love these verses because he just calls it out. and He says, it's evil. That, that it's okay for us to be frustrated with injustice. It's okay for us to be frustrated with something like death. I mean, some of us have suffered loss this week or this month, or some of us have, we feel like we have death looming because there's sickness or, or, or pain out there, right? We 
We want to be, like, be frustrated. There should be something in your heart that desires death to not be so. And in these verses, he says, that it is evil. Death, like, we, we, we say these things, and, and maybe I've said them before, I don't know, but, like, we like to say when death happens, like, well, death is part of life. I mean, yes, that's true. Death is part of life. And death was not actually intended to be part of life. See, God created everything, and he made it all good. And he made people to have relationship with one another for purpose and meaning and flourishing. And, and, and then he also made us to have communion with him. He put humanity in a garden where in the afternoon they, they walked with the Lord. He got to be with God, enjoying good fruit, enjoying relationship. Like that was God's design. There was no shadow of death. Death entered when sin entered. And then you don't like the word sin, but like we all, we all have it, right? You know, evil, brokenness, you know, whatever, like we, wrong, injustice, like pick whatever word you want. The Bible talks about it, it uses the word sin. And he says that it, in these verses, he says that because of sin, it has filled our hearts. That every one of us, man, woman, and child, like, like all of us have sin. It's infected and affected every aspect of it. And you're like, that doesn't sound like good news. Well, it leads to death because you're separating yourself from the source of life. Sin at its, at its um, inception was a rejection of the God of life, of the God of joy, of the God of meaning. And thankfully, God doesn't condemn us to live an eternity separated from him with no opportunity for communion and grace and mercy with him. Like imagine if there was no death. It's like, well, as bad as things are now or as good as things are now, like this is it forever. I want better. I want more than this. And so mercifully, God says, you know, at a certain point, I'm just, your life's gonna have to end. Because if your sin's leading you to harm yourself or others, a good, merciful God can't let just that continue forever. At the same time, God responds to that sin with pursuit. Adam, where are you? Eve, what happened? He said, no, okay, let me, let me cover your sin with sacrifice. Let me make a way, a path of mercy for you to have communion with God. He has not left us alone. No, he, he continues to pursue us. Man, we're way off the notes here. I gotta keep moving. Don't be frustrated that death is coming. Yes, we will all die one day. But as I'm looking around the room, some of you might be sleepy, but none of us are dead now, right? Right? We're all living today. By God's grace, we'll live tomorrow. Like, yes, there will be one day where each of us will suffer death. But as long as there's life, there's hope. And, and we are called not to just sit and wait for that day of death and, and do everything we can to avoid that. We are called to live the life that God has given us today, tomorrow, and, and, and until our day comes. So where there's life, there is hope. And so we all have life right now. So we all have hope. And he, and he uses this phrase, ology, in these verses to kind of give this idea like, you're like, I don't know. I don't feel like things are going that well. He says, listen, a living dog is better than a dead lion. And I know a lot of you guys are dog people and you're like, well, yeah. But, but in that culture, dogs were not seen as these noble pets or substitutes for children. They, they were seen as just like the scavengers. They were out in the streets, just cleaning up all the mess. But lions, victory, nobility, power, yeah. He says, but a dead one's useless. So even if in that society you're a dog, even if in this society you are marginalized, even in this culture or your environment or wherever you're at, you don't think others see you as valuable. In God's eyes, he's like, hey, you're a living dog. You're way better than a dead lion. He's saying as long as there's life, there's hope. Better to be miserable um, as a dog than be a dead lion. And so, I mean, guys, there are times of despair. There are times that just hurt 
and, and, and darkness settles in, right? It's January. We all saw the sun for 14 minutes this week, and we're like, yay! But no matter how dark things get, because some, some, some of us have friends and family who've, who've gone this other direction, don't check out. This life is meant for you. God has a purpose for you in this life now, tomorrow, for the people around you, for you to enjoy, for you to in, invest in others. There is purpose, there is meaning, there is hope found in our lives today. That while we live in the shadow of death, we have opportunities to respond to the reality of our life because, because while, while we might face you know, condemnation or judgment or despair or frustration in this life, um, Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed to men and women once to die, and after this is judgment. So we don't have to always wonder, where am I standing with God? Or, or, or what's going to happen to me? He's like, hey, one day, that's it. Death, judgment. Now, let's live in light of that. Let's recognize that every day that we have is a gift. Let's recognize that there's, we've got breath in our lungs. God has given that to us to, to use for a purpose. And so, he says that right now, well, yeah, there's going to be a time of judgment, a time of, of, um, of judgment, of um, assessment, that, that after we die, life under the sun is forever no more. And he says that means that all of our affections and angers and anxiety, they're going to die with us. He says forever they have no more share in what's going on in the world. And so we can engage with the truth of death and judgment because there's hope for the living. And so if, if you're here today and you're a Christian, you should be a person of great hope and great purpose in, hey, there's a whole bunch of other people around me that might need some hope right now. They might need to be reminded that they were made in the image and likeness of God and they are worthy of dignity and honor and respect. That they don't have to define themselves or even find themselves, but God has already made them in a way that is, that is perfect and, and just and right and good in his eyes. That their lives have meaning. That there is, and we've talked about this, hope that, that eternity with God is going to be better than today. And that we might even have an opportunity to work towards a better future now. Like those of you who are raising a family, those of you who are going to school, those of you who are building businesses, those of us who are you know, in full-time ministry, why are we doing any of these things? We're doing them because we hope that our efforts help lead to a better future than the present we're facing today even if that's in the face of societal decline, even if it's a, that's in the face of great um, resistance and frustration from the world around us, even if there's great disconnect with, with man, I don't even know if I want to be here anymore. Like, like, God, could you come back? Or could you just make everything Montana? Like, that would be great. Like, this is where God has us now. So we live. So we breathe. So we engage with uh, the world around us. Yes, we will die one day, but all other days we won't. And I believe that should be incredibly motivating for us. And, and I, don't just, I don't, don't just get that on my own. I get that from God's word. So this, this chapter continues, and, and in verses 7 through 10, he shifts from, from hey, yep, everybody's going to die. There is injustice. So what do, what do we do What's our disposition going to be in light of the fact that we are all going to die one day? And he gives us this, I mean, it almost sounds like, like a great commission. I'll read it, we'll talk about it. Verses 7 through 10 says this. Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain or vaporous life that he has given you under the sun. Because that's your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, that's a place of death, to which you are going. So, 
Throughout Ecclesiastes, like if you're with us at all in the fall, there was different calls to enjoy life and pleasure and whatnot. And they were more like, they seem like suggestions. And here, like as he's, you know, Solomon's like, hey, in conclusion, four more chapters, four more weeks, right? I love it. Solomon's a preacher like me. In conclusion, 20 more minutes, okay. But in this, in these verses, he starts with the word go. This is the most urgent command in the entire book of Ecclesiastes. So in a book about wisdom, in a book about government, in a book about pleasure, in a book about work, in a book about knowledge, in a book about kingdom building, in all of these things, the most direct command that he gives to anybody in this sermon is go, go enjoy, go live, go eat, go, go like, like love your bride, love your family, live where you're at. That's your portion. You want to know what you're supposed to do? Look around. Where do you live? Who has God put into your life? Those are the people. We are the people. You are the people that we're supposed to love and care for. That we're supposed to engage with. Four or five times he suggested enjoyment, but here's his big call to action. He's like, get out of bed and get busy living or nobody Get busy dying? Nobody's seen Shawshank Redemption? Oh, man. Okay, that's like homework. I think I can almost recommend that movie. It's it's really hard as a pastor. Like, I'm not supposed to recommend stuff because, you know, everything's terrible. Okay. We get busy living, and I do love that quote, or it's get busy dying. Life in light of death or life in the shadow of death. What's it going to be? And he says, go eat, drink, enjoy. And he says, the point of it all is that God has already approved it. That all the good things in life that we enjoy are God's ideas, that he's created us each for a purpose. And, and, and while the Bible, you know, at points talks about us individually with, with like, like a term like predestination, you know, God foreknew you before the foundations of the earth. Like, wow, that's awesome that God knew you and your story before you even gave a breath. And... Everything that you like and enjoy in this world that God has given us as a gift, he prepared eons before you were ever born. Before your eyes ever opened up to the sun, God made the sun. Before you ever tasted a good meal, God ordained that cows would be delicious if you killed them and grilled them. Miss me with impossible meat. You know, they call it impossible because it's impossible to enjoy it. Okay, that's why. God's idea, good food, good drink. Enjoy the world that God has given us. Those who who do trust in God, we don't have to fear our approval because our approval isn't in what we've done, it's what God has done for us. And that should give us, I believe, like uh, some gospel motivation. That we can be resolved because Jesus is for us because he's worked for us, he's lived for us, he's been obedient for us, he's suffered for us, he's died for us so that we can have life now. And these verses hit life in kind of four key ways that I'll hit quickly. Number one, we are called to contentment. We are called to contentment. So this isn't, this isn't what's really popular, which is like eat, drink for tomorrow, you'll die. No, it's eat and drink to the glory of God that these are God's gifts for us, that God made us to, to need food and refreshment and also for it to be enjoyable. I mean, God could, could have like ordained things for us to consume like some soy paste or something that's, that's tasteless. And I was like, this is what will nourish you. But instead he's like, cilantro, avocado, salt, right? All the good things. God's ideas. God's ideas that God is pleased with us when we are pleased in his provision. Um, Matt was leading the youth group um, over um, this Wednesday and they kind of closed with a section talking about prayer and kind of just those like perfunctory prayers we do before dinner, like hope this food to nourish our body. Like it's going to. I mean, maybe. We did Wendy's on Friday night, did not nourish. Felt like like garbage the rest of the night. We pray that like, let this food nourish our body. Like, Like cells are gonna do their things. What about like, God, thank you that Frosties are delicious. 
right? His ideas. Like we eat and drink to the glory of God. We enjoy what God has made enjoyable. We give thanks to God for good gifts. That enjoying good gifts is a spiritual act of worship, right? Um, as, as Christians, we're called to take up our cross daily, right? We're called to a life of, of sacrifice. At times we talk about self-denial. And sometimes I think that gets so perverted because we believe somehow that we're gonna be more spiritual if we don't enjoy good things. Like, our God is a father who gives good gifts. And, and I know that like Christmas was like 17 years ago. But like imagine it's Christmas morning, and you've, you've given your kids a, a gift that you hope that they're going to like and enjoy. And they open it up. Like, and you're like, isn't it amazing? They're like, yeah, it is amazing. What are you going to do? Well, I'm going to totally deny myself that, and I'm going to be a lot more holy for it, Dad. Oh, cool. I guess we'll just, just set the Xbox over here, and we'll just leave it. We didn't get an Xbox this Christmas. But, you know, if you got, like, if you got one, you're like, oh, yeah, it's way more holy to just never enjoy anything good. God's like, I don't know. I made the sunrise, take a look at it. Right, didn't we have like an amazing sunset at some point this week, right? Gift from God. You're not more holy if you're like, well, you know, it's just because of the, the way the lights reflect off the clouds. And, you know, I mean, what's beauty anyway? No, enjoy. Enjoy. It's like, take the things that come from God and receive them with thanksgiving. First Timothy 4 4 says that. And if you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Everything? No, not everything. Come on, let's, let's be wise. If you can't in good conscience give thanks to God for enjoying it, maybe it's not good for you. Maybe it's not profitable. All right, number two. Number one is contentment. Number two, God desires our comfort. And again, I know this is so kind of countercultural to a lot of what we hear in church often, right? Because it gets wonky when like the prosperity guys are like, yeah, you know, just, you know, you, this is your year of favor. Like I'm declaring 2022 is your year of favor. I can't do that. But he does say here, put on white clothes, anoint yourself with oil. Well, why? That doesn't play with us too often, right? Um, there was severe heat in Israel. And part of how you would deal with the severity of the heat around was not to wear black, but to wear white, because it would reflect a little bit. To at times put on lotion or oil. Like, he's like, hey, it's hot enough already. The world's difficult enough already. There is sin, there is brokenness. Like, as beautiful as that sunrise was, it was like two days later that was like, hey, a volcano went off in the ocean? And like, you know, I don't know about you, I wore like a life jacket all day yesterday worried about the tsunami that was coming. But you saw it, it's like, bam, it's just this, that's destruction. Hey, there's enough to be worried about. So God's okay, not with us constantly only being comfortable, but he's okay with us experiencing comfort. There are difficult circumstances in this world and God gives us tangible items or, or experiences or people to, to, in our lives just to enjoy, right? I love the show Parks and Rec. You know, one of the seasons, a couple of the main characters are like, treat yourself. Like, there's a whole day to treat yourself. And it's like, oh, that sounds kind of weird. Well, but, but right here, he's saying, put on the white clothes, Anoint yourself with oil, like enjoy and find some comfort because the world's harsh enough as it is. Now with that, I think some of us maybe pursue comfort a little too much at times. So we avoid self-indulgence, right? We want to be good stewards. We want to, want to bless others. But he uses this, this white um, uh, garment, and that's a, a color of purity and of victory, that, hey, you don't walk around with your, with your head down and, and always despairing. He's like, you can be comfortable and, and, and content, and, and you can also be a little, like, like we said, resolved. You can be resolved because Christ is for us, that our victory is assured. We can walk in the new life that he's given us, free from bondage of sin, so we can actually exhale for a moment. All right, number three. He also gives us committed companionship. 
He talks about marriage here, and, and I know that there are marriages that are strained. I know that some of us have grown up with marriages at different points that were not great examples of, of um, loving, self-sacrifice, and joy. But, but what he's talking about here is that, that marriage was and is intended to be a gift from God to his people to reflect God's faithfulness to his people, but also to, to be a place of intimacy and, and protection and joy. And he says, your spouse, he says, is your, your portion for the good times, but also for adversity. I mean, I've talked about this before, but like, yeah, I can remember some great vacations that Tara and I have taken and trips away, but but the the seasons that have grown us most or the times where I've been like, wow, our marriage is really something that is a huge blessing from the Lord, isn't the vacations. It's been the times of deep, deep, soul-crushing adversity where she's still there, where we're still there for one another. I say, oh wow, this, this is a gift that God has given us. And, and, and he says, that's your portion. These are your people, that marriage is for our joy, but, but it's also for rest in the midst of frustration that can be a solace in the midst, he says, of your vain life. And, and, and I think what's amazing about that is whether it's marriage or it's family with your kids uh, or it's other relationships you have, Like, let's not do the Christian thing where we're like, well, there's JV, which is, you know, married without kids, and varsity married with kids. No, no. Whatever relationships God has given you, that they are a gift, and and that they are to be stewarded, that they are a part of joy. But I think part of why God gives us relationships is because the world's big, and, and our desire for significance is also big. And... I mean, just most of us, I mean, I'll put myself in the, we're not famous or gonna be. But man, do we matter to those people that are in our lives. You matter to the people in your lives. To your grandkids, to your nieces and nephews, to your coworkers, to your neighbors, to your teammates, to your spouse. You matter to those people. So you might not be influential or an influencer, but you are so important to those people in your life. And that should give us meaning and purpose that, yeah, you're gonna die one day, but today, you're to live for and with those people in your life. You enjoy and cherish family in each season. I know some of you have just had babies and some of you have kids that are small. And man, like, you showed up today, that is a huge, huge win. Some of you have teenagers and they're angsty and some of you have grown kids and you're like, wow, where did things go? Savor, savor each season of life. If God has given you children and that's part of your life, man, savor it because, I mean, I'm already at a place now as my kids are, many of them are teenagers, half of them, right, um, where I'm just like, whoa, there's some seasons that are gone. Like, I I used to leave the house uh, every day at our old house, and before, as I would leave, um, all six of my kids would have their faces pressed up against the glass. They'd open the window, and they'd yell out a quote from the movie of um, uh, Secret Life of Walter Mitty, where where, um, (laughs) they says, he's like floating in the water, if you've seen the movie, and um, uh, he screams out, it's a porpoise, like like he's like, oh, a shark's gonna get me, and and he screams out, it's a porpoise, and like, no, it's a shark, and I don't know like why that was a thing for us, but like they would scream out, it's a porpoise, when I leave the house, and I'd scream back, no, it's a shark, and then I go to Starbucks and work, and you know, all, all the things. That's been years now. <laughs> it doesn't happen anymore. Crap. <laughs> I didn't put cry in the notes. <laughs> but savor it. Because my wife saw on a meme once that, the, that you look at all the dirty stuff on the glass, and the handprints get higher and higher and higher, and eventually they're gone. So wherever God has you now, or whoever God has put in your life now. Maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your roommate, maybe it's like whatever those relationships are, they are precious. Because they'll be gone one day. And so we live for companionship. All right, number four. We're given commission and we're given a call. He says, your vain life, your life is short. There's work 
and knowledge and wisdom, like, like that's all things that we're supposed to do now. Because life is short, we work hard now. And so we work where we're called, and you're like, well, where am I called? I don't know where I'm called. It's here for now. Maybe tomorrow it's somewhere else. Maybe a year from now it's somewhere else. But today, you're called to work and live in Snohomish County, Washington in 2022. Gosh, <laughs> it's been a long one. This is where we're called to be. Is it awesome? No. Sometimes it's amazing. Sometimes it's terrible. Other places are the same. Sometimes awesome, sometimes terrible. This is the place that you and I have been called to be for this moment with these people. And so we're given this call to, to work, to live, to, to do all these things. And so we can't just wish our lives away. Like, I wish I was over here, or I can't wait until this happens, or until these kids are this age, or until this promotion, or until the church is this size, or until, like, until this promotion, or whatever it is for you. Like, live our lives now. And that's something that I just, I want to be super clear. Like, this isn't my idea. I heard it somewhere else. But like, guys, we're, we're like 22 months into that. Like, I just joked it's still 2020. We're 22 months into a world that has told us, hit pause. Not for now, or not forever, just for now. Hit pause. Don't see anybody. Don't do anything. Don't go anywhere. Okay, hey, listen. If you're sick, stay home. Please, please, if you're sick, stay home. But know this. They were now 22 days closer, 22 years, months, ah, can't even, 22 months closer to your day, to my day, to our day of death. So quit hitting pause. Start living. Be wise, follow your conscience, that's great. Like, but guys, don't listen to a world that tells you you can just put your life on pause and later on, you can just pick it back up where you, like we do that on Netflix, and we think we can just, oh, just pick it back up where it's at. This is the day. Tomorrow's the day. Next week's the day that we've been given to live. To live! Not be on pause. Hit play. And start living. Guys, this is not supposed to be a downer. This is supposed to be a motivator, right? He's given us these days. And they're limited Jesus got this. Jesus came in for a mission that was, was in a sense, limited. That was out of place, out of time, with a people. And even Jesus says in John 9, 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Like, there's gonna be a time where, where your time is done. So start living, start working. Enjoy, live, press in. And then, don't be surprised if it gets hard. Don't be surprised if it is difficult. The next verses talk about that. It says it is going to be hard. So while we're, we're given this, like, how do we live? We live content, with comfort, committed companionship, commission and call. Like, those are all good things. And then, and then let's remember, and as we say, like, hey, we want to be resolved, that it can and will be difficult. It says that here in verses 11 and 12. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared in the evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. We need to be people that can persevere in the midst of unpredictability. I love the analogies he uses here. Fish swimming, right? Birds flying. He's like, they could hit a snare. They could hit a net. But you know what the birds and the fish don't do? They don't stop swimming. They don't stop flying. They're not just like, well, I'm gonna, just going to stay here. Right? No, Dory, right? Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming, right? We know. Keep going. It's going to be difficult there's going to be times that, the, that it, you don't have it figured out. There's going to be upsets, right? The Cougars won the Apple Cup. Nobody saw that coming. They won't win for a while again. They get one. It's fine. But he says, hey, the strong don't always win or dominate. Life's unpredictable. But remember that we're in the hand of God so that we can live in a place of faith. And that should just kind of, kind of blow up any sense of self confidence that we have in ourselves, and it should lead us to a place of self-reliance on God, 
and who he is. That wisdom, intelligence, and skill are not always guarantees that everything's gonna go well. That seasons of life are unpredictable. And he uses that, again, net or snare, like he's like, hey, our lives are unpredictable enough that you're gonna walk into something and not even know that's what's gonna happen. I mean, rewind two years. If I told you January 2020, hey, BT-dub, here's what's coming, and we knew it, could you have done anything to stop it or make your life substantially better? I mean, I can think of two things. Like, you'd buy toilet paper, right? And you'd be like, hey, whether I've got 100 bucks or 1,000, I'm gonna put it all on Zoom. I think that'll go well, right? Put, put all your money on Zoom and buy toilet paper. That's like all you could have done. Like, ah, I would have made it to Tennessee. Okay, maybe. Let's be realistic. Our lives and the world we live in is unpredictable. He says at a certain point that you're gonna face moments of chance and in that we think like rolling the dice, we think like totally unpredictable. What it actually translates, the word translates into a timely incident, meaning things that appear outside of our ability to predict or control but are still, where? In the hand of God. He knows what's going on. He knows how the story ends. He knows what he's doing. A lot of times we don't. And that's okay. Because we can have faith that our response to fear isn't to hunker down around every corner, but is to, again, keep living life, knowing that that we will die one day, but we're called to live all the others. And so... I, I. I don't want this to just be like a, like a rah-rah. I mean, I, I think that's important for us to be motivated, but I want it to be a gospel motivation. As we are Christians, we look at the Old Testament in light of what Jesus has done on the cross. And so that means we can't just, just read these wisdom literature like, like we're, um, you know, two, three centuries or two, three millennia before Jesus, right? We need, to, we need to look at these in light of Jesus. And so these last verses, 9 through 18, I think give us kind of a juxtaposition of what Jesus has done for us and what hope we have. It says this in verses 13 to the end, and then we'll close, like really close. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun. It seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Um, we're like, what does this story have to do with anything that's going on in the rest of these verses? Um, we're called to go, enjoy, work, endure, rest, right? But these verses speak of this little city found in a state of oppression and with a whole lot of opposition around it. What are God's people? What is the church, if not a little city in the midst of a world of opposition? And we're there and we're wondering like, oh my gosh, like there's these siege works against us. Like, less people are identifying as Christians. Laws are being passed I don't like. TikTok exists. Like, what, what, do we, what do we do? And we have hope. Because as powerful as the world looks, it's not gonna be what ultimately prevails. That, that while it says here, one sinner destroys much good, man, start at the beginning of the Bible, one sinner destroys much good. But our hope isn't in that first Adam. Our hope is in the second Adam, who one righteous man in Jesus Christ brings life to billions. That we don't have to worry about the consequences of one sinner, but we rely on the righteousness of one good man who's God, who, who for our sake, though he was rich, became poor, so that in our spiritual poverty we might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says that. Jesus didn't have a place to call home on this earth, on the cross. The whole world was against him. Religious institutions, political institutions, Satan, all of sinful humanity, everything was laying siege against Jesus. 
And Jesus did die one day. Jesus suffered death one day. But he's lived all others. He died one day and lived all others. See, we are people who live on the other side of resurrection. That the worst that the world could do is put Jesus to death. And Jesus is like, okay, cool. I'll suffer death. Three days later, he rises. And it gives us hope that we get to live all the days. One day we'll die, and not nothing, but then an eternity of days with God and his people, with no more sin, no more suffering, no more tears. And we don't have to worry about, oh, are we in this small little city that's going to get beat up? No, the Bible ends with a great and perfect city, a new Jerusalem coming down in splendor that lasts for eternity. It is a place of work, relationship, communion, good food, good drink, all of those things. And so we're not saved by one who's forgotten. We are saved by the greatest king who will never be forgotten. And so what we do now is we respond to that one day where Jesus died. And we remember his body broken for us and his blood shed for us. And every week we come forward and we do that, we're remembering that one day so that we can live all of our other days, not in the shadow of our death, but in light of his death. And because of his resurrection, we have hope that while we live and there's breath, there's hope for us now and for our neighbors. And if we're in Christ, our hope is for eternity. And so part of what we do here in a moment is we stand and we sing. And we sing praises of celebration to a king who's already been victorious. And songs of longing, waiting for that moment where either we die and are in paradise with Jesus or Jesus has come back. New heavens, new earth, no more sin, no more tears. Because Jesus died one day for us, we get to live all of our other days for him when we simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.